Welcome to The Ocean, episode 16. I'm Adam Mosley. Today we're doing a retrospective, looking back on season one of The Ocean podcast and replaying some of our favorite moments, even as we look with anticipation on what's next. So stick around. The Ocean podcast. Life and faith that's welcoming, affirming, and encouraging to others and yourself. Here's our host, Adam Mosley. It's vast beyond comprehension. With an aura and mystique that has inspired countless songs and poems and other artistry, it's tranquil and meditative, but also fierce and sometimes even threatening. Life is born here and sometimes lost here. It's a place of rest and relaxation, but also a place of tireless work. In its depths are the sustaining things of life and at its shore, the freedom of life worth living. From the dawn of civilization, people have been drawn to it, young and old, rich and poor, from every place and people, every culture and tongue, every nationality and skin tone, people of every gender and no gender, every orientation, every identification have sought and been embraced by its waters. It is welcoming to all and none will be turned away. The slope of its shores invites us ever deeper to explore the mystery that lies within its depths. It's the ocean, and it was created for you. And that's how it all began, episode one of the Ocean Podcast. I decided to open the first episode with a little bit of prose because I wanted to give you a sense of just how inspiring the ocean metaphor has been for me. And the more I think about it and the more I process life and faith within this metaphor, the more meaning I find in it. And as this first season went on, I hope that you could feel that. So why and what is the Ocean Podcast? Take a listen. Our goal for the Ocean Podcast is to strip off the sheep's clothing, remove the wolves, and become a safe space for you and people like you. We want this to be a place where all are welcomed, all are affirmed in their humanity and value, and all are encouraged to live the life they were made for, not a life that conforms to someone else's ideals of what they should be. The life-sustaining work of the church is done not just by those behind the scenes, but by those who have been overlooked, abused, abandoned, and removed from prominence in faith communities. A group of determined outcasts who will take the church from where it is now to where God wants it to go. And we need you in the church to remake the church. Season one was really a season in three acts, each act punctuated by deep dives with some amazing guests. We kicked off things by talking about authenticity and vulnerability, deconstruction and reconstruction, and trauma, you know, just lightweight stuff. And my friend Brian Johnson joined me for a deep dive at the end of those episodes. So here's how that first act played out. Some of you have been burned before and you aren't ready to be vulnerable again. I understand that. How can you know who to talk to, who to trust? Well, I have some ideas. First of all, I think you have to observe. You have to become an observer of the group that you might want to be vulnerable with. You probably will need to test it out, to dip your toe in the water a little bit and see how that person or people react. Then at some point, you have to take the big risk of jumping all the way in. 
depending on your situation, that might be a huge piece of you that people don't know. Making a decision to jump in and be vulnerable with other people really comes down to deciding that what you need out of this relationship, out of this space, out of these people is greater than your fear. Imagine a group of people who are committed to accepting ourselves as God made us, of welcoming others with the same honesty and grace we offer ourselves and that we've been offered by others, and a place where people who are nervous or different or hurt, people who have been abandoned by the church, kicked out of faith communities, friend groups, even their own families, where those people can find a home where they can strip themselves down and nobody will stare or think they're ugly or say they don't belong. Today, I want to talk about doing the work of unbuilding and rebuilding our faith, taking the life we've lived in and reworking it into the kind of life we've dreamed of. As a Christian, regardless of my position on anything, the core question that most other Christians will ask and judge me by is, what does the Bible say? And my flippant response is typically, the Bible doesn't say anything because the Bible can't talk, first of all, and it's not a single book written by a single author. The biblical authors had some things to say, but the Bible doesn't speak with one voice. Deconstruction is not about destroying things. What it's about is taking things apart and putting them back together again. It's about seeking truth, even when that truth means there might be multiple meanings or layered meanings in a particular text or idea or philosophy. Contrary to the complaints of some critics, deconstruction isn't about throwing out historical or traditional views. Deconstruction actually asks us to respect a variety of viewpoints and perspectives and to try to find a point of synthesis because no single perspective has all the information. Individual experiences with God are as varied as individuals themselves, and it's not my place to judge whether yours was real or not. Why should I make it my job to say whether Aunt Becky's back was miraculously healed by God or if it was some combination of time, medicine, and diet that made her feel better. I mean, does it matter what I think about that? In the end, I don't have to be right in order for God to love me. You don't have to be right in order for God to love you. And neither of us has to be right in order to love each other, even as we go through the sometimes unsettling process of unbuilding and rebuilding our faith. And guess what? When we stop fighting over who's right all the time, there's so much joy in journeying together. We're spiraling as, as a nation, as a world. And, and when you're spiraling, sometimes even those things in your life that used to seem so solid, so steadying, you realize that they aren't all that stable. When you hear the word cancer, none of the rest of it matters, at least not in that moment. In that moment, the world stops spinning. When crisis strikes, reason can be hard to come by. Reactions can be hard to control. And yet, in the midst of crisis, our reaction is the only thing we have any control over. Because the reality is, crises will happen. We don't know when or how or what form they'll take, but every one of us will face a time of crisis in our lives. And even though they're unpredictable, there are also some commonalities in crises that we can prepare for. If we want to be prepared for the inevitable crisis, we have to start with ourselves. 
Prepare physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually for crisis. Identify specific warnings and threats and prepare specifically for those possibilities. All the while, keep growing and developing a community of friends who love you, accept you with all your flaws, want what's best for you, and will be there to hold you up when things get unsteady, to pick you up when you fall down, and to build you up and encourage you when the weight of crisis tries to crush you and pull you back and drag you down. I don't know about you, but I feel beat up. I feel tired. I feel like giving up. And yet I know that if we give up, If we stop shining light on injustice, if we stop amplifying important voices, if we stop bringing and being good news to our world, then all that death and destruction wins. Grieve, yes. Then act. Act to care for yourself. Act to care for your family and friends. Act to care for the people in this world who you may never meet, but who need justice, equality, mercy, and love. Let's be the kind of friends we need in this struggle. Wow. I cannot wait to jump into our interview today with Brian Johnson. Brian is an amazing human being coming to us via Zoom call from New Orleans. I grew up in a setting, a classical kind of evangelical setting, where it seemed like we were moving much more towards a moral slash uh, purity kind of code as evangelicals. And I, I, that's all I knew. There were questions that I had about faith, and there were concerns that I had, and there were thoughts of inclusiveness that, that I, I wanted to dive more into. And, and at times, it felt like it was really difficult in the context that I was in. I reached a place where I thought, this this image of God that I've had is is too small. This image of God that I've had is too pathetic. This idea that I am lining my life up with a particular God that needs to be defended. What kind of God is that that needs to be defended, that needs to be protected? I, I think God should be big enough to to, to do that for God's self. Jesus was so inclusive. He was so amazing with, with so many, with, with every type of person. And I just started thinking, God should probably look more like Jesus. God's love was more expansive. God's love is all-inclusive. God's love is, is for everything and everyone. God is forever present and always around, uh, not, not removed from our lives. Uh, just a, a lot of these pieces started to come together for me personally. Jesus became more worth following. But I noticed something about me. I was, I was actually starting to like myself more. Like I, I was actually starting to become more loving towards people. I, I started to notice that I was becoming more forgiving, and, and I wanted to practice mercy and compassion more often than judgmentalism or, or, or whatever. And so I, I thought, well, even if this is the wrong track, it sure is a better track <laughs> than the one I was on. Jesus is always inviting people to actually show up to the present moment. It's God in the flesh walking into our shit shell. Like, I'm just going to experience with you. Like, let, let's be a part of this together because this is life. Like, this is what it is. We're not following magic Jesus. You know, Jesus isn't just, uh, Jesus or, or God is not just there to, to, to placate us. Uh, 
and to make things all better. I think, I think the whole deal is God gives us human life. And, and that, again, one of the things I think Jesus is doing is saying, hey, listen, you are a human being. And I want to come and show you what a, a human being fully alive can really look like. Recently, within that past few months, you got the diagnosis of ALS. You know, if, if people don't know what that is, amyotrophic uh, lateral sclerosis, which ultimately it impacts and affects your entire body. It, it kills your motor neurons, which fire off uh, the signals to your muscles. And so eventually this disease causes you to, to you, you actually can't move. You know, your muscles just don't work, don't work anymore. And eventually you can't breathe. Uh, and so at that point you have to either, you'll either die or you'll get a trach. It's a terminal disease, average lifespan of four years. So when, when the doctor said those letters, yeah, it completely rocked my world. I'm going to have trouble. I've never been promised I wouldn't. We're all going to have trouble. But the real promise is that God is here. Like God is right here in it. So this has been our approach. And I, I have experienced the amazing grace of God in this. I'm not experiencing this on any uh, hyper level at all. I think I'm just tapping into this. But wow, what if? What if we could begin to experience the, the, the true, amazing connection with this loving, divine being? I, I, I think it changes everything. That was spiritual director Brian Johnson, and that episode, episode five, is our most downloaded episode. So if you haven't listened to it yet, you definitely want to go take a listen to that one. For act two of this season, we started doing some uh, introspection into how sometimes our criticisms of the church and our criticisms of ourself overlap. And we talked about hypocrisy, how to have a self-welcoming faith, and how to pursue true equity in our life and in our world. And we capped that off with a two-part interview with intersectional activist Darren Calhoun. So let's roll some of that. Churches, it turns out, are full of hypocrites. You only have to look at recent headlines to understand that. The solution, though, is not getting rid of all the hypocrisy. That's impossible. But to embrace a type of honesty largely unseen in church circles today. To admit, like the Apostle Paul, that the things we want to do, the things we stand for and care about and value, we don't do. There are many Christians who are convinced that the sin of being seen as a sympathizer of the Black Lives Matter movement is something to be ashamed of. Meanwhile, they're literally condoning and excusing cold-blooded murder. If BLM wins, then these people believe that Christians will lose power, that police will lose power, that freedom and liberty and, I don't know, bald eagles and flags will lose power. They believe Joe Biden will hurt God. They are gravely concerned with grabbing at power and are willing to hide their humanity in shame to cover over any hint of empathy because that would make them somehow anti-God in the eyes of their peers. But God knows the real you, the naked you, the you without fig leaves and bushes to hide behind. And God loves you. God loves that version of you. The you that you don't show to anyone else, the you in your living room, the you inside your head, the you in the closet. God not only loves that version of you, God loves being with that version of you. God enjoys the real you much more than the Insta version. 
I know I'll never not be a hypocrite. I know I'll never live up to that impossible standard. My resolve at this point is just to be a better hypocrite, (laughs) a more honest hypocrite, a more authentic hypocrite. The kind of hypocrite who says, yeah, I do a lot of harm to myself and to others, even though I don't want to. But for me, I would rather be surrounded by people who are honest than by people who are pious. Many of us have been ostracized by the church, removed from Christian community, bullied, belittled, and driven out. And some of us have discovered that the issue lies not with our difference, but with the intolerance of those who refuse to accept us. You are welcome. Welcome in God's family. Welcome in the communion of the saints. Welcome with your fear and insecurities. Welcome with your doubts and questions. Welcome regardless of your background, your family history, or your story. Welcome regardless of who you are or who you love. You're welcome. You're celebrated. And you're important. Many of us grew up in traditions where the only real identity that mattered was that I was a sinner. We sang amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We have so internalized that language of brokenness, impurity, stain, and sinfulness that when we look at ourselves, we see the absolute worst. Even the super religious, super judgy people in the privacy of their own thoughts often see themselves as wretched monsters. This is the story about a God who loves you no matter what you do. Identifying the people, the communities, the religious systems and theologies that have rooted you in shame and fear is critical if you're ever going to heal from the trauma that they've caused. It's impossible to heal if you're still actively being harmed. I want to encourage you to face your fears, your fears of rejection, your fears of condemnation, even your fears of damnation. Let it all go and let God show you how much love God has for you as you are, where you are, who you are right now. What if you don't check everyone else's boxes for how you should look or act or talk? What if you invest in being you rather than the you someone else thinks you should be? And whether you stand on the shore and breathe in the sea air Gently dip your toe in the foaming waters, or if you dive in head first into the deep abyss, it is the same ocean. And there are others here. We welcome you. And now, maybe for the first time, you can become yourself. We are, Jesus says, to love God with our whole being and to love our neighbor in the same kind of way. The intimation is that to love one is to love the other. That's why I get so incredulous when I hear Christians, people who claim to love God, advocating for harsher sentencing or more aggressive border patrol or increasingly violent policing. Jesus said, whatever you did to the least of these, you did to me. And to those who insist that Jesus would never be symbolized by those who break the law or that Jesus would simply comply with police instructions, I say, maybe you should read the Bible again. Jesus isn't just embodied in the compliant, but also in the person trying to negotiate a reduced sentence, the person seeking asylum, and even the person who crossed a man-made border while fleeing violence in their home country. Justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. Are we willing to sacrifice 
something so that others don't have to sacrifice everything. Well, my guest today is Darren Calhoun. Darren is many things, uh, an associate fellow with Christians for Social Action, a worship leader at Chicago's Urban Village Church, a sought-after speaker, blogger, activist, and intersectional advocate. One of the things that I think we don't often realize is that because of what is set as default and normal in our society, um, there are parts of who I am and what, what my natural way of being in the world is that do come across as being a lot or extra. And in my own journey, I've had to learn that I am just me. I am just enough. My earliest adult years were spent in a church trying not to be gay, um, trying to please the pastor who had like basically an endless list of demands and um, not realizing just how much harm and, and how, how off my life was getting because of all these efforts to try to become something that I wasn't. I, I feel emboldened to speak out about the things that I speak out for because I'm very much in touch with where I was at one point. I was the street corner preacher who had the bullhorn, who was telling people walking by on their way to wherever that they were going to hell if they didn't repent. I was the one who told people they needed to, to, to renounce the homosexual lifestyle so that they uh, could make it to heaven because these were the things that were being told to me. Um, these were the things that were being encouraged by my leadership. And to, to get very personal, I led people to the same toxic church that harmed me. I don't spend a lot of time declaring this side or that side is right, but I do spend a lot of time inviting people to converse and to engage with each other. There's no way for me to, uh, to, to live as a Black person in Chicago and not also notice that Black and brown people tend to be exposed to more pollution because of the ways that cities have been built and the ways that people have been allowed to move in certain neighborhoods. Like, it all connects if you look far enough or if you look wide enough. We learned years ago that the most effective campaigns aren't single issue campaigns, but instead campaigns that connect to lots of other things that are happening at the same time. I haven't been affecting people who are at the furthest end of conservatism. What I've been doing for 20 years is actually ministering to or serving or helping or walking with people who have questions. And so when conservatism's endless answers don't add up, your kid comes out or you have a divorce or uh, someone in your family is trans and the answers you've always been given don't work, then they go, well, who else has something to say? And then they listen to someone like me who does do the patience, does do the, hey, let's talk about this, the, all of that work. And then when those people are affected, they go back and affect the people who are more conservative. Tolerance is a, a, a big value, but you can't tolerate everything. Specifically, you can't tolerate intolerance because if you tolerate intolerance, the intolerant will take over and push out the tolerant. <laughs> it doesn't work just in every kind of way. I think there are there's a width and a breadth and so forth of how people can be faithful in their responses that don't necessarily mean you have to disqualify, attack, or treat others as hostile. And it's when we're able to protect difference is the way I like to put it. When we're able to say, this isn't my value, 
but I want them to be able to have theirs. I think that's the kind of uh, stance that that's really helpful. I really appreciate the ocean as a metaphor for the fact that it is deep and it is wide. And there are all kinds of life forms that are teeming about in very different environments, but they all share the same ocean. So whatever you are, wherever you are on your journey, there's room for you. You just have to find the right space. And there's a space for you to thrive in the ocean. And lastly, Act 3 centered largely around the outsized role that men have played in the history and theology of the church and of our world. Author and podcaster Megan Chance joined me for a deep dive. Take a listen. In rural East Tennessee, the moral majority was the majority, the norm. To be anything other than a right-wing conservative took significant effort. I learned at a young age that abortion was murder, that Democrats were trying to remove prayer from schools, uh, and that there was an evil gay agenda that was threatening to destroy Christianity. I went to Webster University to get a theater degree, but what I learned in my time in St. Louis was far more consequential than proper breathing techniques or how to move through a room with intent and purpose. What I learned is that people who are Democrats, people who smoke and drink, people who are gay, and people who regularly drop F-bombs, all of these people can also be brilliant thinkers, incredible friends, selfless, welcoming, deeply spiritual and that often they will act a lot more like Jesus than any of the evangelicals I grew up around. The empire of conservatism has spoken, the church has capitulated, and the conservative playbook has been rewritten as scripture. To oppose or even question the supposed truths of modern conservatism is to stand against biblical teaching we're supposed to believe. If you aren't anti-LGBT, anti-choice, anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant, and anti-poor, are you even a real Christian? The answer from many corners of evangelicalism is a resounding no. Our Lord and Savior Ronald Reagan spoketh trickle-down economics and family values into existence, and it was good. Facts are not facts, because if they are true, then the entire religious political power system comes crumbling down, and average ordinary people might see through the bullshit and decide that revolution is preferable to subjugation. The concept here is clear. Trust and obey, and nothing bad will happen to you. The more negative implication is also clear. If you fail to trust and obey, then bad things will happen to you. Or put more nefariously, if bad things are happening to you, it's because you aren't trusting or obeying. Do as you're told and you'll receive everything your heart desires is the cry of an authoritarian, of a dictator. It is also the primary cry of the evangelical church in the U.S. and around the world today. A theology that serves empire and patriarchal power structures far more than it serves God or the people of God. The, the scriptural interpretation of conservative evangelicalism is a literal, non-critical view of the Bible as a cohesive book rather than as a collection of ancient writings from authors known and unknown. It is a patriarchal interpretation of patriarchal literature written in a patriarchal culture by patriarchal writers. 
This kind of social degradation, commoditization, and devaluation of women is all too common throughout the history of the church, and it's alive and well today in the male-dominated authoritarian theology and praxis of far too many faith communities. The God of American evangelicalism is a God of vengeance, control, manipulation, and power. The God represented in Jesus turned the tables on all that. But for some reason, these people who use Jesus's name have skipped over his version of God. Instead, they've embraced some kind of 1950s stereotype of the macho man God. This God is ready to punch somebody in the face if they don't agree with him. He is an abusive father who's constantly watching to see what you're doing wrong and punishing you accordingly. He's, he's a bully who has no concern nor space for contradictory views. He is impatient, unkind, jealous, boastful, arrogant, and rude. Their God looks out for number one, is constantly grumpy, and is taking notes when you cross him. In other words, their God is the antithesis of love as defined in the Bible that they so claim to love in 1 Corinthians 13. For their God, the end always justifies the means, even if it means selling your soul for a few conservative Supreme Court justices. Kamala Harris stands to become the first black vice president, the first Indian American and Asian American vice president, and the first female vice president in the over 230 year history of the United States of America. It's not because no one has tried. Throughout history, 98 other women have been vice presidential candidates. Hillary Clinton was actually the 92nd woman to run for president. Of course, she was the first major party presidential nominee, and no woman has come close to what she did in earning 65.8 million votes. Someone that most people have not heard of, a black two-time presidential candidate who ran on a platform of racial justice, gay rights, and a reform agenda that sought to rid the U.S. of a two-party political system. Her name is Lenora Fulani. Nobody was likely to beat Bush, especially a young black woman. But Fulani wasn't really trying to win. She was trying to make a point. She was stoking a conversation about racial justice and gay rights when the other candidates weren't talking about it. She was, some would say, raising a stink. Raising a stink is what minor party politics is about. And Fulani raised a stink that year by becoming the first black, first independent, and first female presidential candidate to make the ballot in all 50 states. She would not be ignored. I distinctly remember Geraldine Ferraro. I was only six years old when she ran as the vice presidential pick of Walter Mondale on the Democratic ticket. They were running in 1984 against the wildly popular Ronald Reagan and they lost in a historic landslide. You see, in the early 80s, the thought of a female vice president was simply unheard of. At the time, only 24 of the 535 members of Congress were women, and there were no female governors serving that year. Ferraro showed the political world that a woman could be tough, that she could dish it out and take it. She showed them that a woman can be smart, a revelation to some. And she showed them that a woman had all the stamina and strength required to campaign for the second highest office in the land. From Ferraro's long shot VP candidacy in 1984 
to Lenora Fulani's historic achievement of being the first female presidential candidate on the ballot in all 50 states in 1988, to Sarah Palin's nomination in 2008, to Hillary Clinton's historic presidential run in 2016, to Kamala Harris's high-energy candidacy in 2020, the history of women being considered serious candidates in the U.S. presidential politics is embarrassingly short. Well, I'm really excited. My guest today is Megan Chance. Um, Megan is an author, speaker, and the host of a really popular podcast called Faith and Feminism. Her forthcoming book, Women Rising, Learning to Listen, Reclaiming Our Voice, will be available in March. Megan, welcome to the ocean. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This is about power differentials. This is about inequality. And I just had this profound realization that women and young girls were not being trafficked because men had sexual desires. They were being trafficked because they're viewed as less than human. Um, you don't rape someone unless their no doesn't matter. You don't silence them unless their voice doesn't matter. You don't expect them to be a servant unless you view them less than you. And here I was coming from a conservative context that told me that the answer to these problems was for women to be more submissive and to cover up more. And I just saw that was not the case at all. I was told that my whole worth was in my sexual purity and that I needed, that my body was dangerous and that I needed to cover up my body to protect men so they would not feel lust towards me. Uh, I think the church was trying to stop the objectification of women by objectifying little girls um, because I first got these teachings when I was uh, pre-pubescent. Like I was learning that my body was dangerous and something to hide and something to be ashamed of. With that idea of my whole worth being tied to my sexual purity and me needing to cover up did not prepare me well when I was 13 years old and had a, a stranger grab my breast. Um, I thought it was my fault and I didn't tell anyone. This whole purity culture thing, right, this started in the church as a way to protect sexuality or protect little girls was actually a way that caused them harm. And so for me, this happened to me. I felt shame that I must have made it happen because I wasn't covered up enough. Feminism needs to include trans women. It needs to include LGBTQ. It needs to include, um, right, obviously people of different races. Really, I just try and learn as much as I can from people who don't look like me. Learning from people who don't look like us. It's a, such a simple concept. And yet, really, that's part of what the ocean is. It's about gathering a group of diverse people to speak into and about our lives as they intersect with each other. And as they intersect with some of these big, big questions about God and some of these big questions about human beings and, and about how we live our life. And I hope that this first season of the ocean has really been that for you, that you've been able to, to think deeply about some of these questions, that you've been able to engage uh, these topics as you listen to the podcast and then with your friends, with your family, uh, with your partners, with uh, whoever that is that you process things with. 
But ultimately, uh, I just hope that uh, this podcast has brought you some life, some joy, some energy. I hope it's challenged you, uh, and I hope that it continues to. So we're going to be taking a, a little break for the holidays just to spend some time at home, resting, relaxing with family, and uh, just sort of soaking in this season. We will be back in January, uh, hitting it full bore with uh, some more great topics, some more amazing guests, and even more of you on board. So until then, I'm Adam Mosley, and that's all I've got. The Ocean Podcast is produced and written by me, Adam Mosley, and recorded in Athens, Georgia. The theme music was composed by Irina Kakiani, and the opening voiceover is by Rachel West. This podcast is copyright 2020 by Adam Mosley. For reproduction, interviews, or bookings, email request at theoceanpodcast.com.